The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Lloyd, today our show is about crisis. And crisis really is, you know, as we have on our website, that... Um, Conflict, healing, and crisis all comes together. And the Chinese word for um, for conflict is made up of two symbols, crisis and opportunities. And we're going to be talking with our wonderful gra- guest who teaches and trains people into changing crisis into opportunity. And he is the author, we're talking with Lanny Davis, who is the author of Crisis Tales. He's a lawyer, he's a media manager, he's a television commentator, he, oh my goodness, he is a consultant, he's the author of another book that we talked about on our other show, uh, Privacy Piracy, his other book that I loved was called Scandal, How Gotcha Politics is Destroying America. He began his career in legal crisis management while he served as special counsel to President Bill Clinton. And his clients have included Martha Stewart, Macy's, Washington Redskins, Royal Caribbean Cruises, uh, Penn State University, Starbucks. Oh, my goodness. More and more and more. He is a fabulous lawyer. He's a wonderful guy. I'm so thrilled that he's joining us again. So thank you so much for joining us about your new book, Lanny. Well, you missed the most important credentials that I'm a great fan of Mari Frank for a very long time, oh. a very long time, through both your books and your commentaries and your career. So it's oh. great that we met the way we met, but uh, this is a long-distance romance. Yes, and I always enjoy talking to you on the radio, the radio, and we talked last time you were on the freeway on your cell phone, so that was amazing. <laughs> Usually, I'm in a hotel room, and you know, I have to use the cell phone because these uh, god-awful hotel phones that are the remote uh, phones have a buzz behind them. So yeah. uh, I hope uh, you're hearing me okay on the cell phone. Yeah, you know, I, I always think of you, there's this saying that diplomacy is the art of letting people have your way. And and that is you. I mean, you are so wonderful with words. When I read your columns in the Washington Post, when I see you on TV, you are you are masterful at just being who you are, which is really a wonderful guy. So Great let's compliment. talk. Thank you. Let's talk about why you wrote Crisis Tales. Well, there's a teaching part of the book, which is uh, a frustration almost every day when I watch people who have small problems and blow them up into big problems by just violating 
the fundamental rules that have existed for a long time, and they're rules of human nature, really, that uh, people will forgive and move on if you tell them all the truth. If you hold something back, you're just compounding the story. And in the first chapter of the introduction to my book, I have uh, the last section that I waited until the last minute, literally December, to finish, so I could give contemporary examples under the heading, When Will They Ever Learn? (laughs) And, uh, of course, the last uh, uh, item on my list was the Mitt Romney 47% mistake, which might have cost him the election, certainly hurt him significantly. All he had to say is, you know, I really didn't mean it. It was a stupid thing to say. I apologize to everyone. It would have been over. Right. Do you remember he first uh, didn't really want to talk about it, took a couple of days while he was getting killed. Then finally, he remember he called it an inelegant choice of words? No, Mitt, it was stupid. <laughs> I know. And if you said that, your wife was probably saying that to you is just go ahead and say it. What you said was stupid, but that's really what the reason I wrote the book to answer your question. And I see that so many times that this is, in a way, a, a teaching instrument, although these are rules that everybody should know by now. I know, but I, I mean, I think back to Nixon and when if he would have done your three steps, tell it all, tell it early, tell it yourself. Oh my goodness! What it might have changed the whole course, and he might not have been impeached, right? I mean, I, I, I think he, he, Richard Nixon, would have been president if this were just about a third-rate burglary that he had some stupid people um, execute, and he stupidly looked the other way when they did it. He'd have to tell the truth that he had some inkling about what was going on, and just said, "Look, I apologize, everyone, and this was dumb." Yeah. Instead, it was the cover-up that caused Richard Nixon the greatest problem. Exactly. Clinton, too. So, you know, we've seen this over and over again. And, you know, I think th- telling the truth, especially nowadays with, with the Internet and the vast information that's available, if you don't tell the truth, you know darn well you're going to get found out, right? There's no way that you're not going to get found out. Well, I have to go back to uh, my father when I was 13 years old. And he uh, took me to a baseball game. I hope you don't mind this story, Mari, but it's a great story. I love it. And uh, a very, very beautiful woman walked down the aisle. Every male in the baseball aisle almost fell out of their seats watching this woman pass by. I'm 13 years old, so I guess I'm old enough to know why they're looking. And my father nervously realized that I was watching him just oogle this woman. And he turned to me and he said, you know I love your mother, Lanny. And I said, yes, Dad. And you know, I would never do anything with that woman that I was just looking at, Lanny. Do you know that? And I sort of paused and said, okay, Dad. And they said, listen to me. It's okay to look. It's okay to want. But never do it because you're going to get caught. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's a lesson that when anyone does something that they might be ashamed of, imagine a reporter writing it on the first page of a major newspaper and ask yourself, do you really want to do that? Right. Right. I think people can forgive when you come clean, when you take responsibility, when you just be accountable for it and you atone for it. I mean, that's what people are looking for, right? Absolutely. And proven again and again and again, the American people have an immense reservoir in politics, in business, and in life. Those are my three subtitles. (laughs) An immense reservoir of goodwill and forgiveness if you're straight with them. But if you lie or you dissemble, meaning half-truths, or if you're hypocritical, meaning you, you preach, preach celibacy while you're doing something backstage that's not exactly celibacy, hypocrisy and sanctimony will kill you in politics, business, and life. Yeah. And that's really what each of my two stories, starting in the first-person narrative that I tell in this book, 
uh, to prove my, my five rules. Oh my gosh, your stories are fabulous. Let's get into the rules. You have five rules for coping with crisis that we can use not only in business, and obviously you deal in politics in D.C. all the time, but just generally in life. These are good for everybody. Yes, and the first one is the, is the most important one, which of course is why I put it first, and that's get the facts out. And you can't get facts, facts that can't be disputed, unless in a legal situation you're an attorney, because the other attorneys representing a company or a person will not allow a non-attorney to know bad facts, because that non-attorney can be subpoenaed by a grand jury or by somebody suing you, and that person will be able to be forced to testify against the client. An attorney with something called attorney-client privilege has absolute protection, as much protection as a priest does when somebody confesses. Right. And um, by the way, let's take um, uh, at least um, the, the obvious fact that if you can get to the facts and then go to the public relations firm and develop a message, you've got to have bad facts included in your good facts. If you only give a reporter good facts, it's going to kill you. Then they'll dribble out, as occurred with Richard Nixon, all the way on up to John Edwards. Sooner or later, the bad news gets out. Right, right. So let's talk about, okay, so we talked about the first one is get all the facts out. And by the way, you have a chapter for each of these, which you go into these fascinating stories. But let's kind of give everybody like an appetizer so they're going to want to read this wonderful book. So what's the second rule about the the facts, putting them into simple messages, huh? Well, uh, Mike McCurry, the best, best secretary, certainly in my lifetime, was best secretary to President Clinton, uh, told me one of the reasons why he really wanted me to take the job of speaking for the White House on these controversial issues is that I had the capacity, and maybe I was born with it, of taking a waterfall of facts and putting it through a garden hose into a simple message. So the Royal Caribbean story is about a very tragic incident of a young man who went overboard in the middle of the night on his honeymoon. So with a terrible tragedy for the grieving widow on her honeymoon, and of course his parents. And Royal Caribbean tried to be sensitive and not say too much about what happened in the immediate aftermath, how they found out what they did, how they cooperated with the FBI, with the local police in Turkey where it, it occurred in the Mediterranean. All of those things Royal Caribbean was hesitant to do out of sensitivity to the family. And finally, when I got involved, I had all of these facts about what happened, the timeline, when he went overboard, whether there were witnesses, how it happened. I finally summed up all the criticism of Royal Caribbean in one quick phrase which is the headline that every good crisis manager has to find. And this phrase was, we are a cruise ship, not CSI. Yes. And that was the really summing up. They did everything they could, but they're not a criminal investigative agency. They cooperated with the authorities. That's the best they could do. Yeah. So that's my second rule. I'm sorry to take so much time. No, no, no. Try that's to great. simplify things down so that people can understand what your essential message is. And it's very difficult but if you work hard enough, you can you can get a good, tight message. It's like that acronym, right? KISS, keep it yes. simple, stupid. KISS, <laughs> keep it simple, stupid, exactly. Well, people want to know. Just tell me the facts. Don't play around with what's going on, because then they're not going to, oh, you know, then they're going to question you. You're going to be suspicious. If you come right out and say, look, we're a cruise ship, we're not CSI, we're doing the best we can, we're leaving it to the experts. How can anybody argue with that, right? Exactly. And yet, and yet, when will they ever learn? The same mistakes seem to be made again and again and again and again. 
Well, they should listen to this interview and read your book. <laughs> so let's go to rule three. Well, what? rule three is the um, maybe the most effective uh, tool if you do all the facts and get it down to a simple message. And that is the counterintuitive rule of finding a reporter to write the entire story in one place. And usually I like a leading newspaper in the old days newspaper or website if it's in the new days. But it's the full story. The bad facts as well as the good facts. So there are times where I'll find a reporter to write the story, work with the reporter, let them see all the documents, all the nasty stuff. And if the reporter hasn't asked me the right question to get the nasty stuff, I'll say, why don't you ask me this? Now, that sounds so counterintuitive. I've had attorneys say to me, well, that violates your duty to your client. And I will say, excuse me, I'm an attorney. My duty to the client is to get this story over with quickly. If these facts are coming out anyway, I want them in one story. I don't want them to dribble out a little at a time. And so that is the predicate story, get out in front of the story, is the third rule. Yes. And it makes so much sense that you want to be proactive rather than reactive. Exactly. And so, and then the other thing about dealing with the media, and I know from years that I've dealt with them, is when you get somebody really good, like you have people at the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. I mean, when you get somebody who's a really good journalist, not just somebody from TMZ or something, but you get somebody who's really out there who's trying to do a good job, and you tell them the good, the bad, the ugly, all that stuff, then um, they're going to trust you. And of course, because you've always been telling the truth and being out there and following your rules, when you do call them, they do know that you're going to tell them everything. You know, Mari, sometimes you worry me because you get it so 100% that I'm thinking you can be the outpost on the West Coast that's competing <laughs> with me on the East Coast. Uh, seriously, you absolutely have it right, and there is something counterintuitive. Uh, you do have to make the argument, especially the lawyers who are very siloed, in focusing on winning a case, which I understand, I'm a lawyer myself, yeah. but you've got to get outside that silo and say, look, if this stuff is going to dribble out anyway, yeah. and in the case of a, a, a lawsuit that Discovery will get most of the documents, you can't hold back bad documents, you'll be violating the law, and you'll lose the case on that basis alone, then why not put the documents and the facts out yourself? I would say put a sandwich of good facts around bad facts, and then you'll get a full and complete story, and then it's over. There's nothing new to report. Everything else that is done, I always say, old news, been there, done that. Yes. You know, the one problem that we have in California, and I don't know if they have this out in Virginia or Maryland where you are, but the law in the in California is because of the O.J. Simpson trial, there is um, like a, you know, a, a, a rule of professional responsibility for us lawyers that you are not to talk to the media because they don't want you to try your case in the media. So you really have to hire somebody else from, you know, the CEO has to hire somebody else to come out and be the spokesperson because your attorney really can't do it. Otherwise, he's, you know, violating his rules of professional responsibility. So, Well, let me at least give you some hope. Uh, number one, uh, that rule violates the First Amendment, and it's been a challenge in other parts of the country. Hmm. A court can't tell a lawyer he can't exercise his rights to free speech. What a court can say is you can't say something that prejudices right. uh, a jury. Right. And so the words are, are are subjective words that need to be proven. Yes. If I have misinformation and false statements made about my client, if it's, for example, sued and the complaint and the plaintiff's lawyer let the complaint uh, just speak as a as a written rhetoric 
a tax document, not a pristine pleading. And my client is being falsely maligned and attacked, and that complaint is a public document and not sealed. I have an absolute right to correct the record. No judge can sanction me or would ever be able to sanction me if all I'm doing is factually correcting the record to at least balance what has been done in the complaint. And so in California, I know about that rule. I know about lawyers who constantly say, oh, we can't talk to the press about violating the rule. And I'll say, excuse me, it says prejudicing the jury or prejudicing the case. You can respond to a falsehood and correct the record. I love it, Lanny. I love it. Okay, so let's go to rule four about fight for the truth using the law, media, and politics. So this is the biggest challenge for all lawyers who think the way to win a case is in court. And I say to my fellow lawyers, I'm a litigator for 30 years. It's not that I'm not aware of the dangers of talking to the media or saying something before you have all the facts. I know all those arguments, fellow lawyers, but that's not a showstopper. That's the beginning of the discussion of a media strategy. It's As Mike McCurry used to say, all the lawyer has to do is say, no, we can't talk to the press, we don't know all the facts, and the discussion is over. Yeah. When I was in the room with White House lawyers, and they'd say, we can't say anything to the press uh, because we don't know all the facts, I would say, well, let's do this. Let's say we don't know all the facts, but we do know this, one, two, three, four, five. Anyone here want to object to that? And there'd be like dead silence in the room, and I would get the backing of the President of the United States just to put the facts out. So there has to be a debate, and that's why I do this as an attorney. So I'm in the room with the attorneys, the attorney-client privilege room, that no public relations consultant is allowed in, or there could be a waiver of attorney-client privilege, and at least I'm at the table to engage in a debate. I may not win the debate, but lawyers say to me, look, we're glad you were there because you pushed us to figure out what can we say to the press that doesn't violate the California gag rule and still gets the facts out. Yeah. And you know what, Lanny, as in my old age, I'm learning something that I've learned through just kind of like being in politics with, you know, identity theft and just seeing what's happened years ago. I was an elected official on a school board here. And I've learned that our greatest, um, you know, amendment is the First Amendment. You know, the freedom of the press, the freedom of speech, because you never know what's going to happen in a courtroom, but at least you can, if you can get the media to cover a case that's really got facts that your client or, or something is really, you know, hurting that is not true, it's, and you can get it out in the media, it makes a huge difference. I well, think- I certainly wish that the um, infamous California gag rule, which has been repeated in most states, that uh, tries to thwart free expression guaranteed under the Constitution on the theory that you can't litigate in the media, but they don't seem to mind plaintiff's lawyers who put in false charges in a complaint which is absolutely protected. As you know, a public filing in a court can't be challenged in defamation. It's completely 100%. I say, if you're going to let that get into the public record, you've got to let me correct the public record. And I just wish there were more lawyers that would be saying that to more judges, because I have a feeling someone is going to challenge one time the overly vague nature of those gag rules, and uh, it will be overturned as a matter of constitutional law under the First Amendment. I think you need to write an article about that and put it in the California Daily Journal. I'll help you if you want. Yeah, let's let's co-author it. I love it. I love it. We'll get into equal trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how about the fifth one? Never represent yourself in a crisis. Oh, wow, this is my uh, tale of pain. It's my last chapter. 
it's when I got involved uh, very much behind the scenes trying to help the President of the United States as uh, uh, an attorney that the Embassy of the Ivory Coast hired me to try to extricate itself from a civil war. A man who lost the election was in a bunker, lots of bloodshed about to occur, civil war about to occur. State Department and I worked together very quietly. President of the United States, President Obama, wanted to call this man and get him safe passage out with his family to avoid bloodshed. So I took on this client, publicly identified as being a lawyer for the government of the Ivory Coast, even though I never met the man, never talked to him, never took him on, or never advocated or defended him. And for 10 days, I was literally torn apart, Mm. or at least not literally, figuratively accused of defending uh, a thug, a a murderer, Mm. a dictator. I couldn't defend myself. And then finally, surrounded by family, it's Christmas time, and just literally in physical pain, I just resigned, and uh, the New York Times took my resignation letter, turned it around, and wrote a front-page story that I had decided to cross over and represent dark-side people. And finally, I I had to fight back, had the State Department uh, release me from the commitment of, because it was over, there's nothing more I could do, and we finally tried to get the facts out to State Department spokesman P.J. Crowley. He actually thanked me. But once it got out on the Internet, these very hateful people don't care about what the facts are, continue to repeat over and over again that I'd actually been defending this thug. And it turned out I couldn't kill that story. If you Google me, you'll still find that story being repeated to this day by people who ignore, when I put the facts out, ignore those facts because in the world of the Internet, uh, it, it, misinformation can live on forever because of, of the search engine phenomenon. So this is a chapter where I'm just warning everyone. I, I would liken uh, what I went through to something akin to being surrounded by a swarm of bees, and you and those those are the misinformation and the smears that circulate like a virus on the internet mm, and yeah. on Twitter and on social media. You can swat at the bees all you want. Your reputation and your name is being sullied and smeared. It's all false. They're all lies. And what happens when you swat at a swarm of bees? Yeah. It's a futile sensation. You kill a few, and it just makes them matter, and they keep swarming. Yes. But my advice at the very end of the book was I tried to be my own crisis manager. Is The name of the chapter is don't try to represent yourself. Get somebody else to fight for you, because if you fight for yourself, it's a losing battle. And that's my advice to people who have experienced it. And I'm already getting calls from people who say, oh, my God, I'm going through the same thing. These people on Twitter are vicious. They do name-calling. They lie. And then it circulates enough times that people see, geez, I read this a thousand times. It must be true. Right. So that's a very important moral of the book is no matter how futile it seems, you've got to fight back against these nasty people who don't care about the truth. And some of them, by the way, are, are, are journalists that actually have a good reputation. There's one guy in the New Republic uh, who's constantly posting name-calling, nasty, calling me all sorts of names and referring to my representation of these terrible governments when all I was doing was trying to make these governments good and make them into democracies, and they keep repeating. So this is a a, a difficult chapter for me to end with, but I wanted everybody to know is you've got to fight back with 
the facts. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, there was a book written by Dan Solove, who is out on your side of the country. He's a law professor, and he wrote a book called The Future of Reputation on the Internet. And he talks about how viral it is, just like what you're talking about. And that is really a very dark side of the Internet. And there's even a company that I interviewed on Privacy Piracy called Reputation Defender. And what they do is they put a lot of really, really good stuff on so that the bad stuff goes lower down and doesn't come up as quickly on, on Google. Right. Or that, that, that's what they do. But it is a problem, not just for a, someone like you who is a real VIP in this country that is was unfairly treated, but it happens to everybody. And it's uh, Well, you know, ultimately the antidote to lies uh, is the truth. And if people give up, then there's never, ever going to be a way to defeat these anonymous, uh, vicious people. And it only takes about 20 seconds on Twitter to see how vicious people are willing to be when they're hidden in anonymity. So there really needs to be a way, uh, and somebody will invent a website that does it, that outs who's behind some of these uh, smears. And maybe that becomes a deterrent, because once you're held accountable uh, for lying, then you're not so willing to do it. Right, right. So your bottom line in there is just to have somebody else be your crisis manager for you, because it's it's just too hard for you. Yes, the title of the chapter is yes. a fool, a fool for a client, <laughs> which is of course the old joke. Any lawyer yeah. who represents himself is a right. fool for a client, and that was me. Yeah, yeah, and, and we've all done that. We've all done. Oh, so, look, I, I, you know, I'm out of time. It's just terrible. I know. To so well, you are so wonderful, Lanny. We will have you back Thank again. You. I just want to mention Thank your you book so again, um, "Crisis Tales" by Lanny J. Davis. It's wonderful, Lanny. Just give your website, and we're going to let you go back to work. Okay, I guess not. He, we will give his website for him, which is um, Lanny. Uh, it's, it's LannyDavis.com, where you can find out more about him, the, see some of his articles and his book and his books that he's written. And just you're going to love Crisis Tales by Lanny J. Davis. And thank you so much. He's terrific. All right, so you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. And I am the host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Visit our website at conflicthealing.com and see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, write us emails about what's important to you, and take a look at some of our articles there about conflict healing. And we can help you and your business to help resolve conflict to make your life more peaceful as well. Thank you for joining us and hope you'll join us next Monday at 8.30 a.m. Thanks. It's about trust Frank, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we are now welcoming back again Lieutenant Robert Wren, who is the new chief of police for the city of Yorba Linda. And he's been with the department doing great work in North County for 26 years. So, hi, welcome back. How you doing, Mari? Good to talk to you. 
talk to you. So we talked before about how you have this new position that uh, the Orange County Sheriff's Department has taken over the city of Yorba Linda, which is wonderful. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the challenges that happen in this transition? Well, there's a, a long list of challenges that we've had to overcome, but specifically since taking over uh, about two weeks ago, we in, we inherited a, a pretty significant burglary problem that the, the city of Yorba Linda had been experiencing for the past three or four months. And so we've been concentrating a great deal of our effort on, on addressing that and trying to resolve that issue. And so there's a challenge in, in incorporating the former Brea police officers who are now deputy sheriffs to do things uh, just in the way, in the fashion in which we do it. There's there's little nuances that are different and uh, adjusting to my attitude and, and, and my focus, which is very aggressive um, and we don't stop until we solve the problem. So that, that transition has, um, they've willingly jumped in. The, the new deputy sheriffs have accepted that challenge and they've been working um, very, very hard at doing this. Uh, we're incorporating the citizens, the residents of Yorba Linda uh, into this effort. We're having a, uh, a town hall meeting tomorrow night and then a large neighborhood watch meeting on Wednesday night. Um, and the purpose of that is to get the information out to everybody and then ask for their for, for the help of the citizens, not in any sort of a physical capacity in confronting anybody, but mainly being the eyes and ears for us out there. So we, instead of having just the deputy sheriffs that are working, looking for these people, we can have 65,000 people looking for them as well and for them to, to, to be aware of their surroundings and if they see something suspicious to call us in. And it's, that has already taken place. This is, uh, you know, we've, we've been for the past couple of weeks putting that information out and the number of tips that we're getting and the number of calls that we're getting on suspicious, suspicious people has really gone, gone up. And as a matter of fact, just the other day, we, we did arrest somebody based on a tip from well, one of the residents. Well, that's wonderful. Collaborating and working with the community, that is terrific. And I know you're going to do a great job of, as you have for 26 years with the department. Thank you so much, Lieutenant Robert Wren, and we'll have you back again, okay? Okay, thank you, Mari. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.